Hey, and welcome back to the history of China. As per the usual, I implore you to check out the website, dormroomhistory.com. And, well, if you want the shortcut to this show, dormroomhistory.com slash the history of China. And be sure to like, subscribe, and give five stars because while it may seem insignificant to you, it means a lot to me. And again, thank you to those that have donated and participated in some of our comment threads. It's been awesome. But last week, we left off at the onset of the Han Dynasty. Started by the once peasant, now supreme ruler, Emperor Gao. I told you that this week we would get into all of the early issues the Han Dynasty faced not more than five seconds after they established themselves. But to fully understand some of these issues, I've decided to go about it in a different way. Throughout the chaos of the Warring States and the astronomical rise, and then astronomical fall of the Qin Dynasty, I neglected a lot of the finer details. What was the average person's life like now? How were these utterly massive militaries organized? Well, so far, I haven't delved too deep into that. But today, we will tackle just that. Because to understand how the Han Dynasty moved away from legalism, we must understand their implementation of Confucian systems. And to understand the fast-approaching war with the nomadic Xiongnu people, we really must understand the Han military. And of course, it's going to be really cool just to learn about the society as a whole. So, without further ado, The History of China, Episode 25, Life in the Early Han. The Qin Dynasty was the enforcer of many things. None so more than their brutal society-wide social and legal code of legalism. While, yes, the Qin dynasty had forced a lot of things through, such as their standardization of everything from the language to those dang cart axles, with the Qin dynasty gone, the biggest thing that they stood for, well, that everyone wanted gone, of course, was legalism. The language and measurements and, yeah, those cart axle widths were fine to stay, just as the Qin had made them. But legalism? Well, come on. We have heard enough about it through many episodes to conclude that yes, legalism was not fun, and with the Qin dynasty gone, time had run out for legalism. But what in the world are you going to replace it with? That question fell to Emperor Gao even before he had secured sole control of China. As you may remember from last episode, when he had taken over the Qin capital city, he immediately voided the death penalty for everything, except for, yeah, the usual suspects of a death penalty, like murder and the bunch. But now that he was emperor, he had to thoroughly restructure the law. The thing that is different about ancient China from some of the other prominent ancient societies is that the Han and the Qin, well... They were not theocracies. But there also wasn't some co-ruling system between a church of sort and a state. 
legalism and Confucianism and Taoism were more akin to philosophies which then dictated law as opposed to a religion and a church that made law in the ecclesiastical sense. But look, the ancient Chinese were no atheists. They believed in the afterlife and were very spiritualistic. But as we have seen already, their major religions were just not built like Western religions, so we have to rid ourselves of that notion, that is, if you are from the West. So for Emperor Gao, rewriting the law meant erasing legalism's legal and societal orders and thus replacing them with something else entirely. But when he first came to power, Emperor Gao, also known as Emperor Gao Zhu, did not like Confucianism. He didn't like reading it. He didn't like hearing about it. He just, well, didn't like it. But in comes a scholar named Lu Jia. Now, like a Thomas Paine character, he wrote extensive criticisms of the current punitive laws, and, well, offered a more virtuous and moral alternative. Thomas Paine wrote Common Sense, which was essentially a tabloid piece, but Lu Jia himself wrote a 12-volume book known as the Xin Yu. X-I-N-Y-U. The Xin Yu was based in Confucianism, and with that, Lu Jia, the author, proclaimed the clear benefits of governing by the moral virtue espoused by Confucianism, as opposed to using, well, the brutal and punitive Qin legalist codes. And Lu Jia, it just so happens, was in the emperor's court. So after he would finish writing one of the volumes, of which again there were twelve, he would read it directly to the emperor himself, fresh off the press. Based on the fact that the Han dynasty was ruled using Confucian ideals, it's clear Emperor Gao was very impressed and very convinced by Lu Jia, and Confucianism did indeed become the state's ideology. But what does that really mean? Well, for starters, it means that Confucian scholars in particular were recruited to serve in the government at all levels. Laws and penalties were greatly relaxed, the legal system was greatly reformed, and just like that, legalism was out, and Confucianism was in. The idea behind Confucianism being the state's ideology, in an extremely oversimplified term, was just to rule by a virtuous example. The emperor was the most virtuous, and if he acted as such, the people would too. But what about those people? What was the population really doing? Because virtually everyone else in China was not in the imperial court, duh. The Han dynasty would eventually prove to be an extremely prosperous dynasty for China. And not just because it came after hundreds and hundreds of years of perpetual war and then the brutal iron fist of the Qin dynasty. It was, in its own right, extremely prosperous. So, moving forward, I thought it would be prudent to dive into the social systems and the lives of the dynasty as a whole. Because while I am enamored with the military history, 
the society itself is extremely fascinating and arguably just as, if not more important. So, starting from the tippy top, you obviously had the emperor. Those in the court, let alone common folk, actually would not have referred to the emperor by his name. So did they not call him by his real name, Liu Bang? Well, of course not. Well, did they call him Emperor Gao, his regent name? Well, actually, also no. They would actually refer to him indirectly, referring to the emperor as things like Bi Xia, meaning under the steps to the throne, or Shang, which just means the superior one, as Shang means above, literally. The arguably next most powerful person in society would have been the Queen Dowager, usually the Emperor's literal mother, though in the case of Emperor Gao, that was not really the case. But all it really meant was just the previous Emperor's mother. So if a child was too young to rule, well, yeah, the Empress Dowager would temporarily wield a lot of the powers of the Emperor. But if Grandma, for some reason, was still around, i.e. the Grand Empress Dowager, she would, as the addition of Grand to her title would suggest, pull rank and hold all of those powers. But yes, of course, the Han Dynasty had just started, but that is the way the system tends to work in every dynasty. We're at the beginning now, the Empress Dowager isn't really a figure now, but she will be literally with the next emperor of the Han Dynasty. But what about the wife, the queen, the empress? Wouldn't she be the second most powerful? Well, she held almost no power, and she could be gotten rid of pretty quickly. But if it gives her any solace, she did have authority over her husband's concubines. So yeah, she has that. And while that's serious, all jokes aside, as mentioned in a previous episode, the one actual big thing that the Empress had, besides just, yeah, having, you know, authority over her husband's concubines, was that the Empress's sons got priority in terms of being heir apparent. So there's that. So while she's the wife of the Emperor, she doesn't really get a whole lot. If she can keep herself in position and get her son to be Emperor... Well, yeah, that's going to make her the Empress Dowager, greatly increasing her societal importance and influence in the court, regardless of if that child is still a child or a full-grown man. Now, the rest of the royal court was filled with a variety of characters, with everyone from family members to military officials to scholars and to, yes, eunuchs. Eunuchs, which I'm not going to describe, if you want to know what a eunuch is, feel free to Google that, E-U-N-U-C-H-S. But eunuchs could be very influential and find themselves in high places. But until they all decided to revolt, yes, that actually eventually happens, the eunuchs had a pretty clear ceiling of power that they could actually obtain, which was comparatively low in the bureaucracy. They could be in the court and be in the bureaucracy, but there was a clear limit to what they were allowed to actually possess in terms of authority. Now, moving on from the eunuchs, 
many of those in the family of the emperor, that is, the male relatives, and other trusted compatriots like loyal military officials, were actually made quote-unquote kings of large fiefs around the dynasty. Fief, by the way, is just a plot of land that uses feudal service. And it is in those fiefs that we begin to see the noble classes. Look, each king of these fiefs had a son, designated to be that fief's heir apparent. Sort of like in medieval Europe, you'd have a lord. Or, a, again, you could also maybe call them kings. But they had a son that would be the heir apparent to that big plot of land. While the other sons, i.e. not the heir, were given the rank of Marquis and ruled over small Marquisates, where a portion of the taxes went into their own pocket. So they sort of ran these weird, semi-autonomous little mini-kingdoms within the dynasty. And the system of keeping the heir apparent close but letting the other sons do their own thing, well, that's a common custom all the way up to the emperor's palace. The sons that were not the heir got land, titles, etc., while the heir stayed close at hand because well, you never know when you're going to need him around, and it's better to teach the heir well, the way of the land. And as the oldest myself, I am totally happy inheriting the title of king and not getting some measly title, but that's just me. While some portion of these nobles were military officials or other government employees, as I alluded to, the vast, vast majority of those who served in government were considered to be the gentry class. Doing great? Yeah. But noble? No. Now, most officials were in the gentry, yes. But not all of the gentry were government officials, and that distinction is important. Government officials themselves actually had a great deal of protection in the Han dynasty. Han government officials could literally not be arrested for crimes, that is, unless the emperor himself okayed it. And as you could imagine, if the emperor had to get involved, that protection vanished pretty fast, and they would get the regular fettered treatment of a commoner should the emperor okay their arrest. The emperor, though, also had to okay their punishments. But there was again an upside of being a government official, because if you were a government official sentenced to death, you were given the privilege of being allowed to commit suicide instead, thus dying with dignity. Gee, thanks. But don't get it twisted. Just because I'd mentioned Confucianism reigned and legalism was out does not mean the Han was some la-la land singing kumbaya. There were rules, and there were laws, and there were strict customs. And officials caught taking bribes or doing any other bad things could find themselves on the chopping block and missing a head. So the hierarchy of the government officials at the top started with the three excellencies, who, as I'm sorry to announce, had ever-shifting roles. So there were the three top government officials known as the three excellencies. Now below them, there were the nine ministers. Each of the nine would head a different bureaucratic branch, 
And then below them were just the rest of all the other officials in every branch. So from the three excellencies down to the bottom of the government official totem pole, their pay unsurprisingly decreased every level you went down. But speaking of money, the government officials in the Han Dynasty had a buy-in number, that being a minimum wealth of 100,000 coins, pre-tax, of course. This was not to protect the rich, though, or hold some long-held positions in the same place as one would have seen in Rome's senatorial class. No, they didn't have this to protect a small group of people, because the reasoning was actually a lot more nuanced than one would expect when they were told that a government official had to possess a certain amount of wealth. It wasn't necessarily to protect a wealthy class's power, as much as it was because of the belief that an already rich official would be harder to bribe. Interesting. If they had more money, they wouldn't need a bribe. Why risk death for something that gives you no real gain? Of course, though, having someone in the family in office helps one secure office later themselves. So while it was intended to protect against bribery, the buy-in system did lead to a, well, system of primogeniture all over again. And of course, this would later be the source of some conflict. Primogeniture, by the way, meaning that the son inherits the father's old one, usually being the oldest. But in general, the gentry class at this point in the Han Dynasty was pretty unorganized. And it also included teachers, students, military officers, and scholars alike. But with wealth being measured in land, who was actually working that land? Well, it turns out a lot of different people. Farming itself was taken up by a multitude of people in different social standings. Let's not get ahead of ourselves, though. The nobles and the big landowners were not working the fields themselves. Of course not. That would be crazy. Though farming wasn't looked down upon as a means of living by the gentry, it was not viewed as some task only fit for slaves. And yes, there were slaves and we'll get to them soon. But a scholar saving up to go to school may take to the plow to earn money. That was common. Or do you need money to get that political office? Again, taking to the plow and farming was a common means to do that. Though by and large, the early Han engaged in many feudal practices, and those landowners were more like, well, landlords. Many who did work the fields were known as dian nong, poor tenant farmers who, yeah, in exchange for essentially a small shack and supplies, paid up half of their personal harvest to the landowner. The poor tenant farmers were the majority of those in service of a farm. There would also, yes, be wage-earning farmers, i.e. that student who needed a few bucks, and yes, some slaves. But by and large, it was the Dian Nong, the poor tenant farmers that were the backbone of the farming class. 
And different names are used. Peasant farmers, feudal farmers. They weren't serfs like in medieval Europe, but I believe poor tenant farmer or peasant farmer is the best way to understand that position in society. Hey, wait. What about merchants or traders or shopkeepers? How did we just go from gentry to peasant to slave and skip the merchants? Shouldn't they be part of the gentry? Weren't merchants sometimes, like, very wealthy around the world? The equestrian class, the Venetian traders, weren't some of them wealthy? Maybe, yeah, somewhere else they were. But in the Confucian Han dynasty, a merchant in the gentry class? What are you drinking? Besides the merchants who sold specifically books, the gentry class did not in any way engage with merchants. Merchants or shopkeepers in this era were viewed as pretty much the lowest of the low. They may have made more money than the peasant farmer, sure, way more. But on the social totem pole, they were often viewed as being some of the lowest of the low. And look, and Emperor Gao hated merchants so much that he just straight up banned them from wearing silk, banned them from holding office, and even banned them from riding on horseback. Which you might not think is a big deal, but try traveling by walking everywhere. Oh, and of course, they were banned from buying land. So while a merchant could make some money, there was literally nowhere they could spend it. So many found themselves just operating their shops or running mines for salt and iron and other precious goods and whatnot. But they were viewed as probably some of the lowest of the low. Now, of course, the disdain for merchants didn't always work out so cut and dry. We know now that many merchants in the Han Dynasty did indeed hold land some a lot, and many were extremely wealthy. But there is no denying the society-wide stigma that surrounded merchants in this era. And again, merchants were usually just shopkeepers, but still, they had to wear white clothes to indicate their lowly social status, and were often picked on specifically for conscription. Safe to say, merchants were not liked. And right below the merchants, but above the farmers, were the artisans and craftsmen. Now this is what I find utterly fascinating. The artisans would make less money than most merchants, but they held more legal freedoms. Like yeah, they could wear silk and ride horses and theoretically run for office. I mean, they're not those pesky merchants after all. Because usually we, we view societal classes through the lens of money. It's a clear system. The riches all the way down to the poorest or the most land down to the littlest. And even in societies that, you know, had a huge emphasis on land, still traders and merchants were able to thrive. Not here. <laughs> the merchants could make more money than artisans, but they had way, way less freedoms than them. But who had the least freedoms? And that brings us to slaves. 
Slavery in the Han Dynasty was not a prolific part of society as it was in Persia, Greece, and Rome. Slaves in the Han Dynasty only ever comprised about 1% of the total population, and they were not the labor backbone of any industry whatsoever as they really were in Rome. On one hand, though, in the Han Dynasty, there were state-owned slaves. Now, these slaves were either prisoners of war or actually, more interestingly, gifts from other states. And then, on the other hand, there were private slaves. Now, private slaves were usually, in some cases, if not most, were peasants who fell into debt and sold themselves into slavery, etc., and would usually do menial labor or clean the house. It was definitely, though, not the slave-based ancient civilization that many of us sort of have in the back of our heads. So that, though, is a rough background of the social classes of the Han Dynasty. But what about society as a whole? During the Han Dynasty, the emperor was divided into large administrative units of kingdoms, and commanderies. Now, within a commandery, there were counties, much similar to us today, and within the counties, there were districts, and these districts contained at least several hamlets. Now, an average hamlet, which is a term of sort of an enclosed group of farmers or workers who live in a confined area, the average hamlet contained about a hundred families or so, and was usually enclosed by a total wall with two gates. And now, while I really recommend you do not see the new Mulan movie, if you want to see potentially what a Hamlet could look like, you need to watch just about the first 30 seconds of the movie, and you would have seen the coolest part of it. But moving on. The Western Han capital, though, of Chang'an was an interesting case. Of course, this was not a metropolitan dynasty. It had metropolitan and cosmopolitan areas, but a lot of it was rural, divided into Hamlets. But the capital city, usually the largest, of Chang'an, how it was divided shows a very interesting part of urban life. So the capital city was divided into 160 walled residential wards. Now, each of these wards had their all of their laws and their affairs overseen by a low-ranking government official. And now, the powerful families or the influential local families within the wards were usually the ones tasked with, you know, maintaining social order. It was a very top-down approach. You maintain your own area. If you're the influential ones, there's a low-ranking official. And historians are still unsure, though, as to how many government-controlled marketplaces existed. But there were probably around two to seven big marketplaces in the capital city. And now, within cities, there were, of course, amusements. Not everyone was always fighting in wars or writing political theory of Confucianism. The cities had things for rich people and poor people. They had trained animals performing tricks. They had cockfighting, caged animal fights between tigers. They had horse racing, puppet shows, acrobatics, juggling, etc., and wealthy families, too, could afford themselves to have their own choirs and five-piece orchestras, much similar to Renaissance Europe, but these ones had bells, drums, flutes, etc. And what I mean by that is, of course, back in the day before you could record music, those who were wealthy would sort of just keep someone on hand 
And, by the way, Mozart was someone who was kept on hand. But of course, though, we're getting a little off-topic. Within the cities and the society, gambling was huge, and board games were just as big. And a board game known as Leo Bo was one of the most popular. And, by the way, rules to that and explanations for that game will be on the website. And if some of you read it and get back to me, maybe we can start playing some online Leo Bo during these tough times at home. It is in the family, though, not the gambling, sadly, that we see society tied together. First off, it must be stated that the Han Dynasty, like every dynasty before it, was extremely patriarchal, almost painfully so to the modern reader. Women not named Empress Dowager had virtually no power over their male counterparts, regardless of class. A Han woman was to bend, quote, to the will of first her father, and then her husband, and then her adult son, end quote. While women in the Han were expected to be subservient, though, they often did dress well. They wore makeup, we have found this in archaeological sites, and they had to show grace and respect. They were brought out in public, but again, an extremely patriarchal society. The family unit, however, was influenced by Confucian morals that involved both immediate nuclear family and the greater extended family. The Chinese family was based around the patriarchs. So a father's sons did not consider a mother's side of the family to be part of their clan. Instead, they considered those people, so your maternal side, well, those were considered to be outside relatives. Now, the Han Dynasty law code inherited from the Qin Dynasty, they didn't get rid of everything, said that, well, the same thing we talked about a few episodes ago, in that any family with more than two sons had to pay extra taxes. Yeah, some things just don't change. But bigger than the family was the clan. The Chinese clan, or lineage, involved men, as I mentioned just before, Men who shared a common paternal ancestry. Yet they were divided into subgroups, and this is going to be a little confusing, and how these different sides of the paternal family members relate to each other. The four different subgroups were as follows. First, there were the brothers. Brothers as sons, and your brothers as grandsons. Okay, that makes sense. Two out of four, the father's brothers, the uncles, the father's brother's sons, the cousins, and the father's brother's sons and their grandsons. Okay, so you have your brother's side, you have your father's side and his brothers, none of the sisters. That is just the way it worked. And now three, there was, of course, the grandfather and his brothers and his brother's sons and their grandsons. And then four, and probably the most distant, was the paternal great-grandfather. And in that clan, you'd have that great-grandfather, paternal, his brothers, their sons, all of them, all of their grandsons, and all of their great-grandsons. So you can see that the clan, depending on the family, can be quite massive and quite diffuse. Two, three degrees of separation, and you get to grandsons and sons. I mean, look, I don't even know my second cousins. So... Imagine trying to 
create a clan in ancient China based on all this, it would have been very confusing. But it was the Confucian moral of filial piety that ran the most deep in society and really did tie a lot of these classes and people together. And when Emperor Gao made Confucianism the official ideology, filial piety in China was really etched into stone. As mentioned way back in our episode about Confucianism, filial piety was a core Confucian belief that is still strong to this day. Filial piety in a basic modern understanding is respect for one's elders, to care for them, respect them, and yes, be loyal to them. In reality, in practice in ancient China, filial piety was a society-wide web of respect and loyalty. One had to respect and be loyal to one's own parents and their elders, yes, of course, but one had to also show that same loyalty, respect, and subservience to their boss or their commanding officer and or a government official above them, and of course, to the emperor. And lastly, we bring it back to Emperor Gao. He had implemented Confucianism, but he had also kept up a corvi system. And I might be butchering a French pronunciation there, but bear with me. But this was huge, the corvi system. It essentially was an unpaid conscription for a year or so to literally anything the government needed. Peasants and merchants bore the brunt of the corvi orders, but yeah, military conscription via the corvi was obviously the most common. But you could also be conscripted to work on projects like walls and dams, and also agricultural projects too, because these walls and dams and dikes and canals do not build themselves. But that brings us to our last aspect today. Understanding the military. The Han Dynasty military would end up being an incredible force that took substantial planning, supplies, and a complex command structure to keep it in the field. In 180 BC, the main army of the Han Dynasty was the Northern Army, which was considered to be a professional force, meaning this was not a militia, this was, well, the soldiers' job. They weren't part-time soldiers, they were real-time soldiers. When first created, the Northern Army was comprised of eight regiments and held around 8,000 troops. However, by 31 AD, and I know we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, it was reorganized into a smaller force. But the army was generally designed as such. First, there was an army, a jun, J-U-N which was often based on a region, like the Northern Army, which was tasked with a forward operating presence in, well, Northern Territories. In an army, a jun, the highest officer there was known as an inspector. And this was also known in Chinese as the captain of the center, a beijun zhonghou. Now, below the inspector... There were five sub-commanders, usually at the rank of what we would understand today as being a colonel, 
and who each led one regiment, which was a bu. So you have the jun, you then have the highest officer, the inspector, or the captain of the center, the bei jun zhong ho, and then you had your sub-commanders, and then you had each of those leading one regiment of bu, bu. Five regiments in the Northern Han Army were the Picked Cavalry Regiment, which literally means they were hand-picked and elite cavalry fighters. They were the best of the best. And then there was also a regiment in the Northern Army of Garrison Cavalry. Good, but they're not the hand-picked all-star team. The next in the Northern Army was a regiment of archers, followed by a regiment of foot soldiers, and lastly, a regiment of Chang River fighters. So that is about how it's designed. And you're beginning to see the Han military is really based around cavalry. But regardless, to offer a force of similar size, because obviously not all the armies are just 8,000 men, these are massive armies when they go to war, so to offer a professional force of similar size, the Army of the Western Garden was formed utilizing private soldiers from all the warlords around the region. There was also a southern army, which was created in 138 BC and itself held 6,000 men. However, in this army, the troops were rotated annually, thus they were never really considered a professional force. It is known that, quote, the total number of professional soldiers in the Eastern Han, which we will get into, including all of the smaller groups, amounted to some 20,000 soldiers. So by the time the Han is in full swing, they will have around 20,000 permanent soldiers who are on a professional basis. But to wield such a large force all the time, a swath of logistics were required. According to Zhao Chongguo, who served in the 1st century BC, a force of 10,281 men required the following, quote, 27,362 hu of grain, 308 hu of salt each month, requiring a convoy of 1,500 carts for transport, end quote. Now, one hu is like 19 or 20 liters, meaning that each soldier per month required 51.9 liters of grain and 0.6 liters of salt. And that's an incredible feat to organize all all of that, and get it to where it needs to be. But one of the most striking aspects of the Han Dynasty military that made it stand out, and I alluded to this just a moment ago, is that compared to the dynasties before and after, well, it was their emphasis on cavalry. It is estimated now by modern historians that 36% of their professional military force was in fact cavalry, compared to only 6% of the Qin's forces being cavalry, and only 3% of the Ming Dynasty's forces being cavalry. It's an anomaly, almost an outlier, how much they relied on cavalry. However, the Han military took one interesting aspect from the Qin Dynasty, in that their armies never had permanent generals or field commanders, they were, quote, chosen from court officials on an ad hoc basis and appointed directly by the emperor as the need arose, end quote. So you couldn't just have a general who perpetually had an army. And if you know a lot of ancient history, 
Well, a lot of trouble is usually started by an angry general with a lot of soldiers loyal to him. The Han Dynasty and the Qin Dynasty just completely said that's not going to happen. We are going to pick our generals when we need them. Oh, look at that. There's an invasion. Okay, you two are our generals for now. Go do your job and then we will rescind your generalship. Very interesting stuff. But again, that cavalry. And understanding that's going to be interesting because the Han Dynasty are going to need all the cavalry they can get. Because the expert horsemen, the Xiongnu, well, they're coming. Next week, enter the Xiongnu, one of the most formidable foes ancient China had ever faced to this point. And when the Xiongnu are forced out again, it is rumored that some went west, started a tribal gang of dominoes as they pushed other tribes out and thus more west, until a tribe named the Goths had no space left because an alleged descendant of the Xiongnu, the Huns, were banging at their doors. But that is a story for a different time. As always, be sure to like, subscribe, and rate five stars, and check out the post for this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you all next week on the History of China. <laughs>